Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesy. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 7 and 8 of Re- Reform or Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. Um, I don't really have much to say about these two chapters. I thought they were really good. So let's just dive right in, cut the shit, and just read it, get right into reading. Chapter 7 Cooperatives, Unions, Democracy. Bernstein's socialism offers to the workers of the present the, the prospect of sharing in the wealth of society, the poor to become rich. How will this socialism be brought about? His article in Neuzeit, Problems of Socialism, contain only vague allusions to this question. Adequate information, however, can be found in his book. Bernstein's socialism is to be realized with the aid of these two instruments, labor unions, or as Bernstein himself characterizes them, economic democracy, and cooperatives. The first will suppress industrial profit, the second will do away with commercial profit. Cooperatives, especially cooperatives in the field of production, constitute a hybrid form in the midst of capitalism. They can be described as small units of socialized production within capitalist exchange. But in capitalist economy, exchanges dominate production. As a result of competition, the complete domination of the process of production by the interest of capital, that is, pitiless exploitation, becomes a condition for the survival of each enterprise. The domination of capital over the process of production expresses itself in the following ways. Labor is intensified, the workday is lengthened or shortened according to the situation of the market, and, depending on the requirements of the market, labor is either employed or thrown back into the street. In other words, use is made up of all methods that enable an enterprise to stand up against its competitors in the market. The workers forming cooperative in the field of production are thus faced with the contradictory necessity of governing themselves with the utmost absolutionism. They are obliged to take toward themselves the role of capitalist entrepreneur, a contradiction that accounts for the usual failure of production cooperatives which either become pure capitalist enterprises, or if the workers' interests continue to predominate, and by dissolving. Bernstein has, t- has himself taken note of these facts, but it is evident that he has not understood them. For together with Mrs. Potter Webb, he explains the failure of production cooperatives in England by their lack of discipline. But what is so superficially and flatly called here discipline is nothing else than the natural absolutist regime of capitalism, which it is plain the workers cannot successfully use against themselves. Producers producers cooperatives can survive within capitalist economy only if they manage to suppress, by means of some detour, the capitalist-controlled contradictions between the mode of production and the mode of exchange. They can accomplish this only by removing themselves artificially from the influence of the laws of free competition, and they can succeed in doing the last only when they assure themselves beforehand of the constant circle of consumers, that is, when they assure themselves of a constant market. It is the consumer's cooperative that can offer the service to its brother in the field of production. Here, and not an Oppenheimer's distinction between cooperatives and that produce and cooperatives that sell, is the secret sought by Bernstein. The explanation for the invariable failure of producers' cooperatives functioning independently and their survival when they are backed by consumer organizations. If it is true that the possibilities of existence 
of producers' cooperatives within capitalism are bound up with the possibilities of existence of consumer cooperatives, then the scope of the former is limited, in the most favorable cases, to the small local market and to the manufacturer of articles serving immediate needs, especially food products. Consumers, and therefore producers' cooperatives, are excluded from the most important branches of capital production, the textile, mining, metallurgical, and petroleum industries, machine construction, locomotive, and shipbuilding. For this reason alone, forgetting for the moment their hybrid character, cooperatives in the field of production cannot be seriously considered as an instrument of a general social transformation. The establishment of producers' cooperatives on a wide scale would suppose, first of all, the suppression of the world market. Breaking up the of the present world economy into small local spheres of production and exchange, the highly developed, widespread capitalism of our time is expected to fall back into the merchant economy of the Middle Ages. Within the framework, framework of a peasant present society, producer cooperatives are limited to the role of simple annexes to consumer cooperatives. It appears, therefore, that the latter m- must be the beginning of the proposed social change. But this but this way, the expected reform of society by means of cooperatives ceases to be an offensive against capitalist production. That is, it ceases to be an attack against the principal basis of capitalist economy. It becomes instead a struggle against com- commercial capital, especially in small and middle-sized commercial capital. It becomes an attack made on the twigs of the capitalist tree. According to Bernstein, trade unions too are a means of attack against capitalism in the field of production. We've already shown that trade unions cannot give the workers a determining influence over production. Trade unions can determine neither the dimensions of production nor the technical progress of production. This much may be said about the purely economic side of the struggle of the rate of wages against the rate of profit, as Bernstein labels the activity of of the trade union. It does not take place in the blue of the sky. It takes place in the well-defined framework of the law of wages. The law of wages is not shattered, but applied by trade union activity. According to Bernstein, it is the trade unions that lead, in the general movement for the emancipation of the working class, the real attack against the rate of industrial profit. According to Bernstein, trade unions have the task of transforming the rate of industrial profit into a rate of wages. The fact is, the trade unions are least able to execute an economic offensive against profit. The trade unions are nothing more than the organized defense of labor power against the attacks of profit. They express the resistance offered by the working class to the oppression of capitalist economy. On the one hand, trade unions have the function of influencing the situation in the labor power market, but this influence is being constantly overcome by the proletarianization of the middle layers of our society, a process which continually brings new merchandise on the labor market. The second function of the trade unions is to ameliorate the conditions of the workers. That is, they continue to increase the share of social wealth going to the working class. This share, however, is being reduced with the fatality of the natural process of growth and the productivity of labor. One does not need to be a Marxist to notice this. It suffices to read Rod Bertus in explanation of the social question. In other words, the objective conditions of capitalist society transform the two economic functions of the trade unions into a sort of labor sisyphus, which is nevertheless indispensable. As a result of the activity of his trade unions, the worker succeeds in obtaining for himself the rate of wages due to him in accordance with the situation of the labor power market.
As a result of trade union activity, the capitalist law of wages is applied, and the effect of the depressing tendency of economic development is paralyzed, or to be more exact, attenuated. However, the transformation of the trade union to an instrument of progressive reduction of profit in favor for wages presupposes the following social conditions. First, the cessation of proletarianization of the middle strata of our society. Secondly, the stoppage of the growth of productivity of labor. We have, in both cases, a return to pre-capitalist conditions. Cooperatives and trade unions are totally incapable of transforming the capitalist mode of production. This is really understood by Bernstein, though in a confused manner. He refers to cooperatives and trade unions as a means of reducing the profit of the capitalists and thus enriching the workers. In this way, he renounces the struggle against the capitalist mode of production and attempts to direct the socialist movement to to struggle against capitalist distribution. Again and again, Bernstein refers to socialism as an effort towards a just, juster, and still more just mode of distribution. It cannot be denied that the direct cause leading the popular masses into the socialist movement is precisely the unjust mode of distribution characteristic of capitalism. When the social democracy struggles for the socialization of the entire economy, it aspires therewith also to a just distribution of the social wealth. But guided by Marx's observation of the mode of distribution of a given epoch is a natural consequence of the mode of production of that epoch. The social democracy does not struggle against distribution in the framework of capitalist production. It struggles instead for the suppression of the capitalist production itself. In a word, the social democracy wants to establish the mode of socialist distribution by suppressing the capitalist mode of production. Bernstein's method, on the contrary, proposes to combat the capitalist mode of distribution in the hopes of gradually establishing, in this way, the socialist mode of production. What, in that case, the basis of Bernstein's program for the reform of society? Does it find support in the definite tendencies of capitalist production? No. In the first place, he denies such tendencies. In the second place, the socialist transformation of production is for him the effect and not the cause of distribution. He cannot give his program a material base because he already overthrown the aims and the means for the movement of socialism, and therefore its economic conditions. As a result, he is obliged to construct himself an idealist base. Why represent socialism as the consequence of economic compulsion, he complains? Why degrade man's understanding, his feeling for justice, his will? Bernstein's superlatively just distribution is to be attained thanks to man's free will. Man's will acting not because of economic necessity, since this will only since this will is only an instrument, but because of man's comprehension of justice, because of man's idea of justice. We thus quite happily return to the principle of justice to the to the old war horse on which the reformers of the earth have rocked for ages for the lack of sure means of historic transportation. We return to the lamentable Rossonite on which the Don Quixotes of history have galloped towards the great reform of earth, always to come home with their eyes blackened. The relation of the poor to the rich, taken as a base for socialism, the principal cooperation as the content for socialism, the most just distribution as it as its aim, and the idea of justice as its only log- historical legitimization, with how much force, m- more with and more fire, did Weitling defend that sort of socialism 50 years ago? 
However, that genius of a tailor did not know scientific socialism. If today the conception tore if today the conception tore into bits by Marx and Engels had it half a century ago is patched up again and presented to the proletariat as the last world of socialist science of social science, that too is the art of a tailor, but has nothing of a genius about it. Trade unions and cooperatives are the economic support for the theory of revisionism. Its principal political condition is the growth of democracy. The present manifestation of political reaction are, to Bernstein, only displacement. He considers them accidental, momentary, and suggests that they are not to be considered in the elaboration of the general directives of the labor movement. To Bernstein, democracy is an inevitable stage in the development of society. To him, as to the bourgeois theoreticians of liberalism, democracy is the great fundamental law of historical historic development, the realization of which is served by all forces of political life. However, Bernstein's thesis is completely false. Presented in this absolute force, it appears as a petty bourgeois vulgarization of the results of a very short phase of bourgeois development, the last 25 or 30 years. We reach entirely different conclusions when we examine the historic development of de democracy a little closer and consider, at the same time, the general political history of capitalism. Democracy has been found in the most dissimilar social formations, in primitive communist groups, in the slave states of antiquity, and in medieval communes. And similarly, absolutism and constitutional monarchy are to be found under the most varied economic orders. When capitalism began with the first production of commodities, it resorted to a democratic constitution in the municipal communes of the Middle Ages. Later, when it developed into manufacturing, capitalism found its corresponding political form in the absolute monarchy. Finally, as a developed industrial economy, it brought into being of France as the Democratic Republic of 1793, the absolute monarchy of Napoleon I, the nobles' monarchy of the Restoration Period, 1850-1830, the bourgeois constitutional monarchy of Louis-Philippe, and then again the Democratic Republic, and against the monarchy of Napoleon III, and finally, for the third time, the Republic. In Germany, the only truly democratic institution, universal suffrage, is not a conquest won by bourgeois liberalism. Universal suffrage in Germany was an instrument for the fusion of, of the small states. It is only in this sense that it has any importance for the development of the German bourgeoisie, which is, otherwise, quite satisfied with the semi-feudal constitutional monarchy. In Russia, capitalism prospered for a long time under the regime of Oriental absolutism, without having the bourgeoisie manifest the least desire in the world to introduce democracy. In Austria, universal suffrage was above all a safety line thrown to a foundering and decomposing monarchy. In Belgium, the conquest of universal suffrage by the labor movement was undoubtedly due to the weakness of the local militarism and consequentially to the specific geographic and political situation of the country. But here we have a bit of democracy that has been won out, not by the bourgeoisie, but against it. The uninterrupted victory of democracy, which to our revisionism as well as to bourgeois liberalism, appears to be a fundamental law of human history and, especially, modern history, is shown upon closer examination to be a phantom. No absolute and general relation can be constructed between capitalist development and democracy. The political form of a given country is always the result of a composite in the existing political factors, domestic as well as foreign. 
It admits within its limits all variations of the scale from absolute monarchy to the democratic republic. We must abandon, therefore, all hope of establishing democracy as a general law of historical development, even within the framework of modern, modern society. Turning the present phase of bourgeois society, we observe here two political factors which, instead of assuring the realization of Bernstein's schema, led rather to the abandonment by bourgeois society of the democratic conquests one up to now. Democratic institutions, and this is of greatest significance, have completely exhausted their function as aids as in the development of bourgeois society. Insofar as they were necessary to bring about the fusion of the small states and the creation of large modern states, Germany and Italy, they are no longer indispensable at present. Economic development has, meanwhile, affected an internal organic psychiatrization. The same thing can be said concerning the transformation of the entire political and administration state machinery from feudal or semi-feudal mechanism to capitalist mechanism. While this transformation has been historically inseparable from the development of democracy, it has been realized today to such an extent that the purely democratic ingredients of society, such as universal suffrage and the republican state form, may be suppressed without having the administration, the state finances, or the military organization or the military organization find it necessary to return to the forms they had before the March Revolution. If liberalism as, nest, as such is now absolutely useless to bourgeois society, it has become, on the other hand, a direct imp impediment to capitalism from other standpoints. Two factors dominate completely the political life of contemporary states, world politics, and the labor movement. Each is only a different aspect of the present phase of capitalist development. As a result of the development of the world economy and the aggravation and generalization of competition on the world market, militarism and the policy of big navies have become, as instruments of world politics, a decisive factor in the interior as well as in the exterior life of great states. If it is true that the world politics and militarism represent a rising tendency in the present phase of capitalism, then bourgeois democracy must logically move in a descending line. In Germany, the great in, in Germany, the era of great armament began in 1893, and the policy of world politics inaugurated with the seizure of Kaio Cheu were paid for immediately with the following sacrifice, sacrificial victim, the decomposition of liberalism, the deflation of the center party, which passed from opposition to government. The recent election of the Reichstag in 1907, unrolling under the sign of the German colonial policy, were, at the same time, the historic burial of, of German liberalism. If foreign politics pushed the bourgeoisie into the arms of reaction, this is no less true about domestic politics thanks to the rise of the working class. Bernstein shows that he recognizes this when he makes the social democratic legend, which wants to swallow everything. In other words, the socialist efforts of the working class responsible for the desertion of the liberal bourgeoisie. He advises the proletariat to disavow its socialist aim so that the mortality frightened liberals might come out of the mousehole of reaction. Making the suppression of the socialist, socialist labor movement an essential condition for the preservation of bourgeois democracy, he proves in a striking manner that this democracy is in complete contradiction with the inner tendency of development of the present society.
He proves at the same time that the socialist movement is itself a direct product of this tendency. But he proves at the same time it's still another thing. By making the announcement of the socialist aims an, an essential condition of the resurrection of bourgeois democracy, he shows how inexact is the claim that bourgeois democracy is an indispensable condition of the socialist movement and the victory of socialism. Bernstein's reasoning exhausts itself in a vicious circle. His conclusions swallow his premises. The solution is quite simple. In the view of the fact that the bourgeois liberalism has given up its ghost in the, from the fear of the growing labor movement and its final aim, we conclude that socialist labor movement is today the only support for that which is not the goal of the socialist movement, democracy. We must conclude that democracy can have no support. We must conclude that the socialist movement is not bound to bourgeois democracy, but that, on the contrary, the fate of democracy is bound up with the socialist movement. We must conclude that from this democracy does not acquire greater chances of survival as the socialist movement becomes sufficiently strong to struggle against the reactionary consequences of world politics and the bourgeois desertion of democracy. He who would strengthen democracy should want to strengthen and not weaken the socialist movement. He who renounces the struggle for socialism renounces both the labor movement and democracy. Chapter 8. Conquest of Political Power The fate of democracy is bound up, as we have seen, with the fate of the labor movement. But does the development of democracy render superfluous or impossible a proletarian revolution, that is, the conquest of political power by the workers? Bernstein settles the question by weighing minutely the good and bad sides of social reform and social revolution. He does it in almost the same manner in which cinnamon or pepper is weighed out in a consumer's cooperative store. He sees the legislative course of historical development as the action of intelligence, while the revolutionary course of historic development is for him the action of feeling. Reformist activity he recognizes as a slow method of historic progress, revolution as a rapid method of progress. In legalization, he sees a methodo metho methodical force and revolution a spontaneous farce. We have known for a long time that the petty bourgeois reformer finds good and bad size in everything. He nibbles a bit at all grasses, but the real course of events is little affected by such combination. The carefully gathered little pile of good size of all the things possible collapses at the first fillip of history. Historically, Legislative reforms and the revolutionary method function in accordance with influences that are much more profound than the consideration of the advantages or inconveniences of one method or another. In the history of bourgeois society, legislative reforms served to strengthen progressively the rising class to the latter was sufficiently strong to seize political power, to suppress the existing judicial system, and to construct itself a new one. Bernstein, thinking against the conquest of political power as a theory of blanquist violence, has the misfortune of labeling as a blanquist error that which has always been the pivot and the motive force in human history. From the first appearance of class societies having the class struggle as the essential content of their history, the conquest of political power has been the aim of all rising classes. Here is the starting point and the end of every historic period. 
as can be seen in the long struggle of the Latin peasantry fighting the financiers and nobility of ancient Rome, in the struggle of the medieval nobility against the bishops, and the struggle of the artisans against the nobles, in the cities of the Middle Ages. In modern times, we see it in the struggle of the bourgeoisie against feudalism. Legislative reform and revolution are not different methods of historical development that can be picked out at pleasure from the, from the counter of history, just as one chooses hot or cold sausages. Legislative reform and revolution are different factors in the development of class society. They condition and complement each other and are at the same time reciprocally exclusive, as are the North and South Poles, the bourgeoisie, and the proletariat. Even Every legal constitution is the product of a revolution. In the history of classes, the revolution is the act of political creation, while legislation is the political expression of the life of a society that has already come into being. Work for reform does not contain its own independent form of revolution. During every historic period, work for reforms is carried on only in the direction given to it by the impetus of the last revolution, and continues as long as the impulsion from the last revolution continues to make itself felt. Or, to put it more concretely, in each historic period, work for reforms is carried on only in the framework of the social reform created by the last revolution. Here is the kernel of the problem. It is contrary to history to represent work for reforms as a long-drawn-out revolution and revolution as a condensed series of reforms. A social transformation and legislative reform do not differ according to their duration, but according to their content. The secret history, the secret of historic change through the utilization of political power resides precisely in the transformation of simple quantitative modification into a new quality, or, to speak more concretely, in the passage of an historic period from one given form of society to another. That is why people who pronounce themselves in favor of the method of legislation reform in place and in contradistinction to the the conquest of political power and social revolution do not really choose a more tranquil, calmer, or slower road to the same goal, but a different goal. Instead of taking a stand for the establishment of a new society, they take a stand for the surface modifications of the old society. If we follow the political conceptions of revisionism, we arrive at the same conclusion that is reached when we follow the economic theories of revisionism. Our program becomes not the realization of socialism, but the reform of capitalism. It is not the suppression of wages with the wage labor system, but the diminution of exploitation, that is, the suppression of the abuses of capitalism, instead of the suppression of capitalism itself. Does the reciprocal role of legislative reform and revolution apply only to the class struggles of the past? It is possible that now, as a result of the development of the bourgeois judicial system, the function of moving society from one historic phase to another belongs to legislative reform, and that the conquest of state power by the proletariat has really become an empty phase, as empty phrase, as Bernstein puts it. The very opposite is true. What distinguishes bourgeois society from other class societies, from ancient society and social and the social from the social order of the Middle Ages? Precisely the fact that class domination does not rest on acquired rights, but on real economic relations. The fact that wage labor is not a juridical relation, but purely an economic relation. In our juridical system, there is not a single legal formula for the class domination of today. 
A few remaining traces of such formulae of class domination are, as that concerning servants, survivals of feudal society. How can wage slavery be suppressed the legislative way if wage slavery is not the expression of laws? Bernstein, who would do away with capitalism by means of legislative reforms, finds himself in the same situation as Uspensky's Russian policeman who said, quickly, I seized a rascal by the collar, but what do I see? The confounded fellow has no collar. And that is precisely Bernstein's difficulty. All previous societies were based on an antagonism between an oppressing class and an oppressed class. But in the preceding phase of modern society, this antagonism was expressed in distinctly determined juridical relations and could, especially because of that, accord to a certain extent a place to a new relations within the framework of the old. In the midst of serfdom, the serf himself, serf raised himself to the rank of a member of the town community, the Communist Manifesto. How was that possible? It was made possible by the progressive by the progressive of all the feudal privileges and the environs of the city, the corvée, the right to special dress, the inheritance tax, the lord's claim to the best cattle, the personal levy, marriage under duress, and the right to succession, etc., which all together constituted serfdom. In the same way, the small bourgeoisie of the Middle Ages succeeded in raising itself, while it was still under the yoke of feudal absolutism, to the rank of the bourgeoisie. By what means? By means of formal partial suppression or complete loosening of the corporative bonds, by the progressive transformation of the fiscal administration and of the army. Consequentially, when we consider the question from the abstract viewpoint, not from the historic viewpoint, we can imagine, in the view of the former class relations, a legal passage, according to the reformist method, from feudal society to bourgeois society. But what do we see in reality? In reality, we see that the legal reforms do not only obviate the seizure of political power by the bourgeoisie, but have, on the contrary, prepared for it and led to it. A formal social political transformation was indispensable for the abolition of slavery as well for the complete, as well for the complete suppression of feudalism. But the situation is entirely different now. No law obliges the proletariat to submit itself to the yoke of capitalism. Poverty, by the means of lack of, by the lack of means of production, obliges the proletariat to submit itself to the yoke of capitalism. And no law in the world can give the, to the proletariat the means of production while it remains in the framework of bourgeois society. For not laws, but economic development have torn the means of production from the producer's possessions. And neither is the exploitation inside the system of wage labor based on laws. The level of wages is not fixed by legislation, but by economic factors. The phenomenon of capitalist exploitation does not rest on legal disposition, but on purely economic fact that labor power plays in this exploitation the role of merchandise possessing among other characteristics, the agreeable quality of producing value, more than the value it consumes in the form of the laborer's means of subsistence. In short, the fundamental relations of the domination of the capitalist class cannot be transformed by the means of legislative reforms. On the basis of capitalist society, because these relations have not been introduced by bourgeois law, nor have they re received the form from such laws. Apparently, Bernstein is not aware of this, for he speaks of socialist reforms. 
On the other hand, he seems to express implicit recognition of this and writes on page 10 of his book, The Economic Motive Acts Freely Today. While formerly it was masked by all kinds of relations of domination by all sorts of ideology. It's one of the peculiarities of the capitalist order that within it all, the elements of the future society first assume in their development a form not approaching socialism, but on the contrary, a form moving more and more away from socialism. Production takes on a progressively increasing social character. But under what form is the social character of capitalist production expressed? It is expressed in the form of the large enterprise and the form of shareholding concern, the cartel within which the capitalist antagonisms, capitalist exploitation, the oppression of labor power, are augmented to the extreme. In the army, the capitalist development leads to the extension of obligatory military service to the reduction of the time of service and consequently to a material approach to popular militia. But all this takes place under the form of modern militarism, in which the domination of the people by the militarist state and the class character of the state manifest themselves most clearly. In the field of political relations, the development of democracy brings, in the measure that it finds a favorable soil, the participation of all popular strata in the political life and consequently some sort of people state. But this participation takes the form of bourgeois parliamentarianism, which class antagonisms and class dominations are not done away with, but are, on the contrary, displayed out in the open. Exactly because of capitalist development moves through the, these contradictions, it is necessary to extract the kernel of socialist society from its capitalist shell. Exactly for this reason, must the proletariat seize political power and suppress completely the capitalist system? Of course, Bernstein draws other conclusions. If the development of democracy leads to the aggravation and not the lessening of capitalist antagonisms, the social democracy, he answers us, in order not to render its tasks more difficult, must by all means try and stop social reforms and the extension of democratic institutions, page 71. Indeed, that would... That would be the right thing to do if social democracy found it to its taste, in the petty bourgeois manner, the futile task of picking for itself all the good sides of history and rejecting the bad sides. However, in that case, it should try at the same time to try and to stop capitalism in general, for there is no doubt the latter is the rascal placing all these obstacles in the way of socialism. But capitalism furnishes, besides the obstacles, also the only possibilities of realizing social, the socialist program. The same can be said about democracy. If democracy has become superfluous or annoying to the bourgeoisie, it is on the contrary necess necessary and indispensable to the working class. It is necessary to the working class because it creates the political forms, autonomous administration, electoral rights, etc., which will serve the proletariat as fulcrums in its task of transforming bourgeois society. Democracy is indispensable to the working class because only through the exercise of its democratic rights and the struggle for democracy can the proletariat become aware of its class interests and its historic task. In a word, democracy is indispensable not because it renders superfluous the conquest of political power by the proletariat, but because it renders the conquest of political of power both necessary and possible. 
When Ingalls, in his preface to Class Struggles in France, revised the tactics of modern labor movement and urged the legal struggle as opposed to the barricades, he did not have in mind, have in mind, this comes out at every line of the preface, the question of the def definite conquest of political power, but on the contrary, but the contemporary daily struggle. He did not have in mind the attitude that the proletariat must take towards the capitalist state at the time of, of the seizure of power, but the attitude of the proletariat while in the bounds of the capitalist state. Ingalls was giving direction to the proletariat oppressed, not to the proletariat victorious. On the other hand, Marx's well-known sentence on the agrarian question in England, in Bernstein leans heavily on it, in which he says, we shall probably succeed easier by buying the estates of the landlords, does not refer to the stand of the proletariat before, but after its victory. For there, evidently, can be the question of buying the property of the old dominant class when the workers are in power. The possibility envisaged by Marx is that the pacific ex exercise of the, the dictatorship of the proletariat and not the replacement of the dictatorship with capitalist social reforms. There was no doubt for Marx and Engels about the necessity of having pro the proletariat conquer political power. It is left to Bernstein to consider the poultry yard of bourgeois parliamentarianism as the organ, by means of which we are to realize the most formidable social transformation of history, the passage from capitalist society to socialism. Bernstein introduces his theories by warning the proletariat against the danger of acquiring power too early. That is, according to Bernstein, the proletariat ought to leave the bourgeois society in its present condition and itself suffer from a frightful defeat. If the proletariat came to power, it could draw from Bernstein's theory the following practical conclusions. To go to sleep. His theory condemns the proletariat at the most decisive moments of the struggle to inactivity to a passive betrayal of its own cause. Our program would be a miserable scrap of paper if it could not serve us in all eventualities and all moments of the struggle, and if it did not serve us by its application, not by its non-application. If our program contains the formula for the historic development of society from, the capitalist, from capitalism to socialism, it must also formulate in all characteristic fundamentals all the transitory phases of this development, and it should consequentially, be able to indicate to the proletariat what ought to be its corresponding action at every moment on their road towards socialism. There could be no time for the proletariat when it will be obliged to abandon its program or be abandoned by it. Practically, this is manifested in the fact that there could be no time when the proletariat, placed in power by the force of events, is not in the condition or is not morally obliged to take certain measures for the realization of its program, that is, take transitory measures in the direction of socialism. Behind the belief that it, the socialist program can collapse completely at any point of the dictatorship of the proletariat lurks the other belief that the socialist program is generally and at all times unrealizable. And what if the transitory means are premature? If the question hides a great number of mistakes concerning the real course of social transformation. In the first place, the seizure of political power by the proletariat, that is to say by, large by a large popular class, is not produced artificially. 
It presupposes, with the exception of such a case as the Paris Commune, when the proletarian did, did not obtain power after a conscious struggle for its goal, but fell into the hands of a good thing abandoned by everyone else, a definite degree of maturity of economic and political relations. Here we have the essential we have the essential difference between coups d'état and the Blanquise conception, which we are accomplished by an active minority and bursts out like a pistol shot, always inopportunely, in the conquest of political power by a great conscious popular mass, which can only be the product of a decomposing bourgeois society, and therefore bears itself the economic and political le legitimization of its opportune appearance. If, therefore, considered from the angle of the political effect of the conquest of political power by the working class, cannot materialize itself too early, then from the angle of the, con of the conservation of power, the premature revolution, the thought of which keeps Bernstein awake, menaces us like the sword of Democles. Against that, neither prayer nor supplication, neither scares nor any amount of anguish are any of us avail. Are of any avail, and this for two very simple and this for two very simple reasons. In the first place, it is impossible to imagine that a transformation as formidable as the passage from capitalist society to social society can be realized in one happy act. To consider that as possible is again to lend color to conceptions that are clearly blanquist. The socialist transformations supposes a long and stubborn struggle in the course of which it is quite probable that the proletariat will be repul repulsed more than once so that for the first time from the viewpoint of the final outcome of the struggle it will have the it will have necessarily come to power too early in the second place, it will be impossible to avoid the premature conquest of the state by the proletariat precisely because these premature attacks of the proletariat constitute a factor, and indeed a very important factor, creating the political conditions of the final victory. In the course of the political crisis accompanying its seizure of power, in the course of the long and stubborn struggles, the proletariat will acquire the degrees of political maturity, permitting it to obtain in time a definitive victory of the revolution. Thus, these premature attacks of the proletariat against the state power are in themselves important historic factors, helping to provoke the and determine the point of definite victory. Considered from this viewpoint, the idea of a premature conquest of political power by the laboring class appears to be a polemic absurdity derived from a mechanical conception of the development of society, and positing for the victory of the class struggle a point fixed outside and independent of the class struggle. Since the proletariat is not in a position to seize power in any other ways than prematurely, since the proletariat is absolutely obliged to seize power once or several times too early before it can maintain itself in power for good, the objection to the premature conquest of power is at the bottom nothing more than a general opposition to the aspiration of the proletariat to possess itself of state power. This is all roads lead to Rome so too do we logically arrive at the conclusion that the revisionist proposal to slight the final aim of the socialist movement is really a recommendation to renounce the socialist movement itself.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the book club commune. Um, please uh, like and share this with your comrades, anyone who you think might be interested in reading some Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, this is my first time reading Rosa, as I've mentioned before, and I'm thoroughly enjoying reading her. Um, and also, the whole point of this is to like, is to uh, help people have easy access to theory. So if you can help share this podcast, you will be helping me achieve my goals. I don't ask for any money because I don't deserve any money for this, but the only thing I want from this is to have people listen and to create accessible resources for people. So I really appreciate everyone doing that. Um, solidarity forever and keep on reading. <laughs>